turn your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. The book of Numbers, chapter 11. In this book, in this study that we've talked about, where in most of our Bible reading plans, this is the moment where we check out when you get to the beginning of Numbers. as we've navigated this time of what it looks like for God to build up the people of God to move in the direction that he's called them to move. You know, last week we talked about chapter 10 kind of being this pivot point where we begin to see the process of the movement away. Well, what we'll read this morning is we'll see a little bit of a byproduct of what happens when God's people begin to move in God's direction the way the enemy begins to work against that sometimes. So Numbers chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, just to get us started. Start in verse 1. It says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tiberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Church, let's pray together and ask God's word to speak to us in a mighty way as we lean in to his truths this morning. Father, we just thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truths that you've allowed us to have. God, I pray this morning that we would come, Lord, laying our pride aside, Lord, in a state of humility, a posture of humility, Lord, just receiving what it is you have for us, God, in all our brokenness and all our need. Father, I pray that you would just allow us to see what it is that you have for each and every one of us, Lord, as an individual and as a church body stepping out into a community and a culture that you've called us to. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. So again, just th- so thankful for you being here. You know, as, as we kind of get into the message, just continue to be praying for, keeping in mind those who are out. Right now is kind of that change of season. People are sick. Uh, be in prayer for them. Reach out. Just encourage them. Let them know that we missed them. Um, Garen this morning is preaching at his brother's church while his brother's out. So we'll be just continue to lift him up and be in prayer for him as he preaches in Iota at a church that was very generous to us in our getting and going. So it's always great for us to be able to lean in where they are and be able to help them out uh, when their pastor needs to be out. But, you know, Numbers chapter 11, like we talked about last week, 10 kind of being a pivot point where we've seen a lot of preparation. And so now we kind of moved into chapter 10 where God's like, okay, it's time to move, right? They've spent over a year under the shadow of Mount Sinai. All right, over a year since the Exodus, leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, moving into the wilderness, and God providing for them, God doing for them, lead guide directing them, and reminding them constantly that they have promises, that God has made promises to His people, and He has said, there is a land for you. And that even though they'll spend kind of this refining period of 49 years, I mean 40 years, sorry, 40 years moving in that direction. God's promise never changes. And so as they kind of, last week we talked about them moving out from the shadow of Sinai, beginning to move into this space, into the direction of obtaining the promises of God. What did we read in verse 1? Uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, they complained. They're three days out from Sinai. 
three days out from Sinai at this moment, and they begin to complain. You know, and so as I started to read that and kind of pray, you know, asking God to like, what, what do you have for us? As we've been talking about building up, we really feel like the book of Numbers is this really just beautiful picture of God preparing his people for the promises of he- ahead. And for us as a church, as we've grown, as we're nearing five years of, of life in this community, you know, what is, you know, God, we believe God is working those same things within us, building us up, moving us towards his promises, what he has for us, but also what the work that he has in preparing preparing others for the kingdom of God to come. And so we see that as these people, you know, millions, around two million people gather together, these people, God gives them everything they need. He provides them with direction. He provides them with the, 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 the tasks. Remember, he divided them up into, into camps and, and told them what their tasks were and, and where to position themselves and who was moving the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle being the place at which God's presence would dwell. So who was moving the tabernacle? Which direction to go? All of these things, God had prepared this for them. But as they begin to travel, three days out, what do we see? In verse 1, we see that the, they, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortune. You know, and so what for me, for us, as I started to read this and really started to kind of contemplate like, God, what is it you have for us? I really believe what we have here. And I just have one kind of overarching point, kind of one subtitle, if you will, for what God is really, I believe, showing us and what Moses is navigating through and the people of God are kind of participating in here is understanding how worry affects our perspective, how worry affects our perspective and that for them, that their enjoyment and confidence of God that they had celebrated. Remember, right after they crossed over the, the, the Red Sea, we, we read in, in, uh, in Exodus 15, I believe, we read this song of Moses where they're just praising God. They're so thankful for everything God had done. And then they, what happens? They complain. They complain about being hungry. They complain about all these things. So God provides for them. He provides manna. Remember, he says, every morning the manna will fall. It'll come with the dew. And he tells them, he says, he says don't take more than you need. Take just enough. And so he gives them all these instructions. He provides for them. He leads them. He gives them the law at Mount Sinai. What happens? Moses comes down with the law. They're worshiping a false idol. And God's judgment and discipline comes in that time. But God continues to provide, continues to direct. And then as they begin to move towards the promises of God, this movement that begins to happen, how great a place is this for the enemy to begin to work, right? I mean, how many times in your own personal life have you felt or known, you've seen progress in certain things? Maybe it's within a marriage. Maybe it's within parenting. Maybe it's within a job. Maybe it's within ministry that you begin to see movement. And right out the gate, you meet opposition, right? But for them and for us, a lot of times the opposition isn't so much a tangible thing. It's not so much this physicality that lays before us. But I believe it's something that the enemy begins to well up within us to distract us and to change our perspective. And so if I, if I could lean into something this morning, it would be this, to understand how worry affects our perspective. And so my one kind of overarching point that I want us to navigate through this morning is this, is that worry for what could be distracts us from what is. Worry for what could be distracts us from what is. And so as we kind of move into this, we see the people of God in their specific complaint. Like, what is their complaint about? 
In verse 2 we read this. It says, Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord. I'm sorry, wrong verse. This is what he says in... Uh, Verse 6, sorry. But now our strength is dried up. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. He says, for our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So God has provided for His people. God has provided for His people for over a year in this way of providing for them physically, for their physical needs of their hunger. God has given to them. You know, they're navigating a wilderness space where there's not a lot to take part in. There's not, there's, I can't imagine, you know, that they called it this wilderness. You know, we talked about that early on in the series, that it's kind of desolate, that there's not a lot of greenery. There's not a lot of growth. There's not a lot for them to cultivate. And even in that, God has them constantly moving. And so there's not going to be time to develop crops and land. And honestly, the land's probably not even able to cultivate that kind of uh, kind of environment. And so God has provided for them in the midst of this journey, in the midst of this process, God has given them all that they need for over a year. But what begins to be revealed in the midst of the people and what I believe with us sometimes in, in losing focus and getting distracted, that it's not so much what God isn't doing. It's not so much what God isn't doing, but it's something from within us. And I really believe it's just part of what's revealed to the brokenness of humanity and sin is our dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction for what's around us and dissatisfaction for what God is attempting to do. Because what begins to be revealed is the dissatisfaction that leads to a perspective of angst. Of angst. You know, and I know that's not a word that we use a whole lot unless we're talking about like teenage angst, right? I mean, that's a real thing. But angst, you know, which is a little different than anxiety. Because anxiety is a feeling that's, that's kind of focused, that it's a fear about a certain event or a fear about something that's happening. You know, a, a specific event or a specific happening. Whereas angst is a sense of underlying dissatisfaction without a specific cause, Right? Like just unhappy, unsatisfied, unsettled for no specific reason. And that's where we find the people because at every moment of this process, at every big movement, they've come to this place of dissatisfaction and complaining. And I believe this is a space that for many of us, and if you've been around church long enough, you've experienced these things. And, and maybe even thinking about it like this, like for them, like they have multitudes of people. There's this growth, there's the de development, this movement that's happening, and then the complaint starts. You know, I mean, if you've been around church long enough, you know that one of the growing pains of a church, as you begin to move, as you begin to make decisions, as you begin to grow, is there's always that complaint, right? There's those that aren't comfortable with the change, not comfortable with the people that the change brings in, not comfortable with the situations. Like we like our space. We like to be comfortable. I like to come sit in my seat that has my imaginary name on it and that if anybody, a visitor, anybody came, they would take everything that people have, not to tap them on the shoulder and say, I'm, so, I'm sorry, you're sitting in my seat. Can you please move? Forget that they're a guest and you thank God that they've come and been a part of where you are. But that's part of that dissatisfaction, that, that angst that builds up within people when God begins to move angst and, and dissatisfaction begins to well up within certain types of people and so the people here 
These people, they're with this angst and they're dissatisfied, they're unhappy. And despite all God had done, they still found themselves dissatisfied, which led to complaining. And a lot of times complaints typically stem from a dissatisfied heart. That, that they've lost perspective. They've lost focus. And for these people, I mean, God had literally provided for them daily, literally daily, and what do they say? Our strength is dried up. I mean, it sounds very melodramatic, right? It's, it sounds like when our kids say, like, I'm about to die or I'm about to starve to death. Like, it's very melodramatic. Like, our strength has dried up. So defeated. Such a victim, right? And we, we live in such a victimized culture anyway. And, and I believe that's a byproduct of, of the fall is that we're victims. I mean, Adam did it in the very beginning. Like, well... It, it, it wasn't me, it was, it was that person that you gave me. Like, she deceived me. Like, there's all this, we're, we're always a victim. And so, you know, they're saying our strength is dried up. You know, and like we said, this is the moment. This is the moment of movement and progress that would be a common place for dissatisfaction and angst to set in. Because when God begins to move in and through His people is when the distortion and distraction begins to affect perspective. It begins to affect perspective. And I believe there's two elements within this story. There's two elements within this story that contribute to our perspective or the way we see things being affected. And there's two things. The first thing is this, is that they had a mixed company. There was mixed company. And we see that in verse 4. It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Now other translations may would say it a little differently. Other translations would say this mixed group or these mixed uh, people, you know. And so what it's talking about is that you can imagine being in a place for over 400 years that there would have been different type of people that would have maybe married or become a part of the families of the people of the Jews and between them and the Egyptians. And so what has happened is there are people that are with them, this mixed multitude, as some other translations may see it, that there are some who are Jews and some that have come from Egypt or that are are still in Egypt and have people connected that are Jews. And so these people, they're Jew enough to want to pursue the promises, but Egyptian enough to miss Egypt, which seems crazy to us that anyone would ever miss being back in that place. But within that, this, uh, this thing that is affecting their perspective and how they view things is the people that they have allowed to speak into their ears, to speak into their life, to speak into the space where they're at. And what they're doing ultimately is sowing discord, right? These people, they're talking about Egypt to the other people and they're, 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 they're kind of developing this dissension between the people and they're like, well, maybe we do want to be, but maybe I do need that. And so there's this mixed company, this rabble that the ESV says that are talking about Egypt and making them want to go back to Egypt. And so they're sowing discord and discontentment. And God hates this. The Bible literally tells us that God hates this and that some people, some people that we have in our lives and some people we interact with, they are predisposed to negativity and discontentment. And this is a dangerous person in our life. I'm just going to be honest. This is a dangerous person in our life to sow discord, to, to, to sow discontent, to, to sow mutiny amongst a group of people. Proverbs 6 16 through 19. It says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the seventh, the abomination, and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates, in a sense of not like emotional hate, like we hate, but this disdain, this this, this, this aggression, attention towards discord that very obviously is destructive for God's people. To have this voice of discord and discontentment in our lives is a very dangerous thing. And so we have to be knowledgeable of those types of people. The types of people in our lives who are predisposed to negativity. I'm not talking about conversating through realistic issues because I don't believe we're also not called to live like life is, is roses and unicorns and butterflies. Like it, it is tough. And sometimes, especially as, as, as spouses, like we have to lean in and have difficult conversations. And so so not pretending like everything's perfect is not sowing discord. Right? But sowing discord and where a lot of this comes from and where we've seen it maybe play out in churches is sowing discord is having those conversations in corners rather than going to the people who can actually make a difference. Right? That's a problem. That's a problem and it's destructive to an establishment of God is to have those conversations, those cancerous conversations in corners where they're sowing discord to the point where now, where in Moses' situation, the multitude are just, they're just unhappy. They're discontent. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Do not be deceived, brother. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You know, a lot of times we apply that to people outside of the faith. But listen, that also applies to people inside of the faith. People inside of our camps who are predisposed to negativity, who are predisposed to complain, who are predisposed to sow discord about something or about what God is doing or about where God is leading. And because of this, this mixed company, it can, it can mess with our perspective of how we view who God is and what God is doing among me, among my life, or among the church that God has called us to be a part of. And so not only does the mixed company affect the perspective, but the second thing is this, their personal cravings. Their personal cravings. In verse 5 it says, Oh, that we had meat to eat. And then I want you to hear this next part. Oh, that we had meat to eat. And then they say, We ate in Egypt that cost nothing. They ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Can you hear the perspective, the, the distorted perspective that they have on their past? That they have allowed their personal cravings to distort their view of their past so much to literally believe that 400 plus years of slavery cost them nothing to eat well. And for a lot of us, I really believe this, and I've experienced this even in my own personal life, that in times of problems or oppositions, our past sneaks back into our vision, molding our perspective, and if we allow it to, it will begin to distort our progress. Listen, anything within us that draws us back to past cravings, to past things, Church is calling us to backward gazing, and I would say this, that backward gazing robs us of present blessings. That if we are focused on cravings behind us, 
we are obviously missing the blessings of what God has given us. And so what they've done is they've allowed these personal cravings to distort their vision. And what it's done is it's magnifying their portions in their imagination, believing that what we had in Egypt was better than what we have now because apparently what I had in Egypt cost me nothing. Forget the fact that our people spent over 400 years in slavery. Forget the fact that our people were used and abused. Forget the fact that our people were murdered and pillaged. Forget the fact that we lived in poverty. Eating well cost us nothing. And what has happened is they have a distorted view of what eating well then was. And that is so much about where we can find ourselves as we navigate our Christian life. The enemy is going to slide in. He's going to convince us that how you had it was better than how you will have it. That what's behind you is better than what's in front of you. That surely what God has for you is not going to take the place of these things you experience here. I mean, think about it. You know, we say this all the time. Like we think about like the good old days, right? We think back to the good old days. You know, I, I know, you know, you get in a group of people, especially a bunch of people who play sports, and you start talking war stories about this and that. And it's like, oh, it all sounds so good and it sounds so great. Like, man, I'd love to strap it on and, and get out there and play and do this and help out and whatever. And then I think to myself, I'm like, there's no way I would literally die. But then I think back and I'm like, wait, that time wasn't that great, right? Like, I, I struggled at times. Like, I was distraught at times. Like, I, I was, I was alone. Like, I was hurting. Like, I was, I was, I was not a good person. Like, I was not good to other people. Like, we think back to the good old days sometimes and we think to ourselves, man, the grass would be greener if I was there, right? But we say this all the time. The grass is always going to be greener on the other side, but the reality is, is that grass has to be taken care of and watered and cultivated the same way any other grass anywhere else does. So nothing is as good as it is here where you are, where God has placed you. If the enemy has us looking backwards, missing what he has for us. Because the reality is this, is that what the enemy does for us and in us and to us in magnifying the portions of what our past had. And when we focus on the negative of our experiences and we allow that mixed company, we allow those personal cravings to be able to, to begin to distort our perspective about what we have, who God is and what God is doing. But what happens is, is that our past begins to seem more palatable. Because it seem like maybe it was good. Maybe, maybe because this is a space I lived in and maybe in my mind I've convinced myself I'll be more comfortable if I live like this or if I do those things, that it'll be better. You know, they spent 400 years in slavery crying out to God, God, deliver us. Deliver us from this. It's only been a little over a year. And they're already thinking to themselves, man, maybe we were better there. Maybe we had more there. Maybe we were more free. But this is, this is the mindset we have sometimes, right? We believe that maybe we were more free before we pursued God, right? Maybe we were more free out from under the leadership of God, out from under the guidance of Jesus in our life and the Holy Spirit. Maybe we were more free. Man, the, the enemy's greatest trick is convincing us that God's blessings are bondage. And that our past 
was more of a prize to be inherited. But this happens, church. This happens when we have these cravings within us that we keep around. You know, whether it's pet sin, whether it's, it's, it's some sense of like that negativity. Maybe it's some other more specific sin, some type of addiction or whatever it might be. Uh, maybe it's anger. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's slander. Whatever it is that we keep close to us and that we don't deal with or begin to acknowledge within these cravings, they begin to look back and want the comforts they experience while forgetting the slavery that is there. You know, and Solomon talks about this, carrying these things close to us, these cravings. Proverbs 6, 27, he says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Like, can I carry these destructive things close to me? And not be burned by them, not be consumed by them. You know, the reality is some of those cravings that we experience in life are always there. But what we do is we get to decide how close to the chest we carry them. Like how close to our core do we draw those things in? Are we actively keeping those things at arm's distance away? Pushing them away, fighting them away. And listen, there may be some things, some cravings that we push away our entire lives. Fighting back and forth with. But the choice is ours of how close we carry those things. We can't let our cravings be carried too close because they will consume us. Rather, that we be driven by Christ rather than cravings. Cravings never satisfy, but Christ always will. Because unmet cravings that we keep close to the chest, as they begin to consume us, they cause angst. They cause discontentment. And Christ brings satisfaction. Christ brings joy. Christ brings peace. And so when Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5, 7, when he talks about taking this angst, taking these worries, taking these anxieties, he says, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Because He cares for you. Continuing on in Philippians 4, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He tells us, he tells us, instead of keeping those things, carrying those things close to the chest, the things we struggle with, the things that drive us negatively, the things that stir up negativity, the things that stir, stir up discontentment, he says instead of carrying those things close to the chest, because inevitably they will consume us and burn us, he says, man, begin to push those things away. Begin to give those things over to me. Begin to share those things in my direction. Cast your cares on me. Cast your cares in my direction. You will find joy. You will find peace. You will find contentment. You will find true value. You will find the things that you're desperately looking for. The people around us desperately need to know that the things they're looking for in life are much better than these things that keep burning them. That they keep having to treat, that they keep holding close to the chest. He says, cast those things away. Cast those things at his feet. And then continuing on, we see where, where this dri being driven by our own personal cravings can lead. And then we'll be ending here shortly. 
Picking up in verse 18. Picking up in verse 18, he says, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. But, he says, You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days. But a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? So what does God say? He says, okay, you'll have meat, but you're going to have so much meat that you will literally be miserable, that it will be coming out of your nostrils, whether he means that figuratively or, or, or literally, I don't know. But the, the, the thing that God is communicating to Moses for Moses to communicate to the people is when we are driven by our own personal cravings. It is not leading to this place of satisfaction, but it's leading to this place where those cravings are going to make us miserable. They're going to make us miserable because being driven by our own cravings leads inevitably to overindulgence. We don't know how to control ourselves when we give in to our own cravings. And listen, the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, our cravings are not good. Our personal cravings that well up from within us, this product of the fall, the sin of man, is we're led to be satisfied for the moment, right? Which is empty, because inevitably, if you've ever lived by the cravings of the moment, is that that moment goes away quickly, which leads you to another moment, which leads you to another moment of craving, which leads you to another moment of craving. And he says, he says, you will have so much that you will loathe it. And then I love how he says, because you have rejected the Lord who is what? Who is among you. God is literally in your presence and you're still craving things outside of God's provision. Cravings would lead to suffering and overindulgence, which is the inevitable destination when we are driven by our own cravings. And then he says down in verse 34, he says, Therefore the name of this place would be called Gebroth Hetava, which means graves of craving. Graves of craving. Which honestly is what our personal cravings inevitably dig for us. Almost like that saying, to, you're digging your own grave, right? Like, our cravings are creating pits. They're creating holes for us to fall into. And so, what Moses, what God wants us to see is that in the midst of our cravings, number one, to be honest about those things, acknowledge those things, not carrying them close to the chest. Because listen, things that I pull close to myself, like I, I can't see them. Like when we begin to hold on to those things tightly, we cover them up, we, 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 we hide them away from our eyes when we pull them here, where God says, no, cast those things at my feet, begin to push those things away, and then I begin to have a better perspective of my weaknesses, a better perspective of the sin that draws me away and distorts my perspective to make me ever convince me that the past me is better than the present me, that the past promises are better than the future blessings of God, that maybe I'll find more satisfaction that costs me less. Maybe being in slavery to sin is going to cost me less than living in confidence 
of who God is and what God is doing. This is the place at which we have to navigate. And then within that, within that we begin to see something and then we'll kind of move to the end here. But a moment from Moses that the people of Israel kind of reverted back to their past. And there's two things here that I want us to see. But in verse 14, we see Moses have a moment. He says, I am not able to carry all these people. You know, you, if you read that kind of around verse 14, there's this moment where Moses is just pouring out his heart. He's like, God, just kill me. Like, I, why have you given me this? Like, like, I can't do this. I can't carry these people. And really, this is, you know, the people of Israel had their go back to Egypt moment. Moses is having his go back to Egypt moment right here. Because remember when God came to Moses and he said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to say these things to Pharaoh. I want you to tell him to let my people go. And what did Moses say? Moses says, I can't do that for these people. I, I can't speak eloquently enough to go to the Pharaoh and to plead your case, God. So the people had their Egypt mo moment. Moses is having his Egypt moment where he's going back. He's like, God, I can't do this. Like, I can't carry these people. I can't accomplish what you want me to accomplish. And what has happened? Moses' perspective, because of everything that's happening around him, has focused in on himself where he's like, I can't do this. And listen, I don't know about you, maybe dads. I can relate to you a little bit. I don't know if you've ever had that moment as a Christian father or just as a husband where you've thought to yourself, like, I can't do this. Like, I, I can't be who I know you want me to be. I can't be that person that I believe you want me to be. Like, like God, you've given me this and you've done these things. Like, were the, and Moses says, like, were these people born to me? Like, was this my responsibility? Like, he's just really unraveling in this moment. Just such a really honest moment for Moses. He's like, I can't do this. You know, and Moses was distraught. But this moment is a realization that I believe for all of us as Christians, Christian men, Christian women, Christian students, Christian kids, that we have to come to. Because the number one thing we have to understand is in this moment of distress, where did Moses go? He went to God. There are several instances like this in the book of Psalms where David says a lot of the same things. Moses goes to God and literally pours out in all his honesty, even to the moment of like, God, maybe you should just take my life. It would be easier. But he says, I can't carry these people. I can't be for them what you want me to be. But I think this is a moment, moment for all of us that we have to come to to realize because I think we've convinced ourselves, I think a lot of times, even for myself, I've convinced myself as a dad, as a husband, like, I'm the one carrying. Moses, he's saying, I'm the one carrying and I can't carry. For me, as a husband or dad, I'm the one carrying and I can't carry. Now, is this an excuse for, for, for victimization? Is this an excuse to bail out of our responsibilities? Absolutely not. Because when we understand who is carrying, we can understand where our strengths are comes from to carry on. And we see this. We, and that's what Moses did. That's what God did for Moses in Exodus 3. He said, Moses, I'm going to equip you with everything you need to do what needs to be done. Even in the midst of all your weaknesses and failures, I will give you what you need to take steps. You just be willing to be there. You just put yourself in the presence of Pharaoh and I'll do the work. 
And in this moment, whenever Moses comes to God with this, he says, I can't carry these people anymore. God tells him, I'm going to equip you with what you need to do what needs to be done. Just be there. As a Christian husband, mom, uh, uh, spouse, whatever it might be, God says, listen, you're not the one carrying. All I'm asking you to do is to be there and I'm going to equip you. I'm going to create the circumstances where the work can be done. It's not you carrying, it's Him. It's not me carrying, it's Him. We just be a part of it. We get to participate. We get to step in line with the work that God is doing. Isaiah prophesied about this over and over and over again. Isaiah 46, 40 says, Even to your old age I am He, and to the gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear he says, I will carry and will save. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with, with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 40.11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Church, he says, I will carry. And I will give you what you need. I praise God every day that I can lean on him to help me to be the dad, the husband, the elder, whatever I need to be, that he, he carries. I just help out. I'm just there. I'm just present. I just, I just need to take steps. Like Moses standing at the Red Sea, like, Moses, you're not splitting the Red Sea. All I need you to do is lift your hands. Just lift your hands. I'll do everything else. And what did Moses do? Lifted his hands and the Red Sea split. Moses didn't do anything. He lifted his hands. He didn't split the Red Sea. God split the Red Sea. Your family's salvation isn't going to be because you did it. It's going to be because God did it. All God asks us to do is to raise our hands and be there. Be present. Be involved. Participate. In the work that God is already doing. And so there's two quick things, and then we'll end up, I've said that like four times, but there's two quick things that God gives us to reaffirm and redirect our perspective. To fix us back in the midst of our worry, in the midst of our angst, as we begin to walk and do the things God has called us to do, and as the enemy begins to attack us with the people around us or the personal cravings that we have, Two quick things that He provides for us. The first thing is that the people He provides us helps redirect our perspective. The people He provides us. And we see that in verse 16 when Moses goes to God and he says all these things, God, blah, 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 like I, I can't do this, I can't carry. What does God say? Same thing He says all the time, I'm going to give you everything that you need to get it done. But what does He give him here? He says, go find 70 men. Go find 70 men to help you. Seventy men who are elders. And what does he say in verse 16? He says, let them take their stand with you. Number one, let us understand that the people of God are meant to be led by many men. Many people. Men and women standing up and being leaders. Specifically, that's why for us as church governance, we've cho chose to have an elder deacon model. 
where it's not a, 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 an entertainer, pastor, preacher as the main guy, but it's a group of people. And I pray that God rise, raises up more men to accept the calling of elder, shepherd, deacon, whatever it might be, to help because that's how the church is supposed to be built. Moses, people are standing earlier in this. You see people are standing, lining up in Moses' tent. He's like, I can't do it anymore. God said, easy fix. Find 70 men and they will stand with you. They will stand with you. And so not only like on a church governance level, the way the church is functions is by men rallying together and leading. But the second thing is this, to know that God has given us people in our lives to stand with us. As you know, when we do community groups, men and women community groups, when we gather on Sundays, we are surrounding ourselves, purposely putting ourselves in positions to be surrounded by people who encourage us who push us towards the direction God has called us to, who share in our burdens. Because that's what he tells them here. These men are going to share in your burdens. That's what we're supposed to be for each other. We help each other. Our kids, they help each other. As Christian students and as people. And, then, and, you know, and even in that, as God begins to do this, people complain. There's a moment near the end, near verse 28, where these people are like, no, like God, stop. Like, you know, Moses, don't let God use these people. These people start prophesying. They start teaching. He's like, no, 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 don't let them do that. Don't let them do that. And Moses is like, he says there in verse 28, are you jealous? And then he continues on in verse 29. And he says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? Like, don't we want people to do ministry for people? Like, don't we want people to lean into spaces of broken people and to help and to participate? Like, why are we trying to micromanage God's work within people? Because we need people. Church, we need people. We need people standing in the gap, leaning into broken spaces, broken homes, broken people, a broken culture. We need people. Moses says, listen, would that all the Lord's people would prophesy, would teach the Word of God. And the second thing is this, not only does He promise the people that He provides us, but the second thing is this, is this presence that He promises us helps with our perspective. His presence. Verse 23, God says this, He says, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Is the Lord's hand shortened? David says in Psalm 42, 5, it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. God has promised us His presence. He has given us a guarantee that He is with us, that He is for us, that He is fighting on behalf of us. And so knowing this and understanding this should help fix our perspective to see the direction we go, the things we do and how we live and how we function within the scope of each other. And there's something very specific that God has given th those people to remind them of God's provision and God's participation with them. And it was the manna. Remember the manna was the bread from heaven that God provided, that He provided daily, that He gave them. And so this manna was a reminder of His promises and His presence with His people. And His provisions and His promises revealed to us, to them, in their manna. And so some things about the manna. You know, the manna was supernaturally given. The manna had to be eaten. 
The manna had to be gathered daily in the morning before they were consumed by other things. They said, pick it up in the morning. The manna had to be obtained through diligence and worked for. It had to be picked up. It had, they had to bend down to pick it up, a sign of humility and dependence. Not only that, but as we read in this moment, the manna was despised by the mixed multitude. They wanted more. Church, the manna was God's sign that He was with His people and that He was providing for them. And for us, to help shift our perspectives, God has provided us with a manna to remind us of His promises and His provision. Our manna is God's Word. Because it has been given to us the same way that the manna was given to them. It's been supernaturally given. The book of Timothy tells us that it's all breathed out by God. That God's word is breathed out supernaturally. That is to be consumed. Jeremiah 15, 16, he says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. The God's word is meant to be consumed, not just read, not just letters on a page. It's meant to be consumed. It's meant to be taken in daily before we're distracted by other things. Listen, and I think that's important. It's important that the first thing that our eyes hit isn't Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. Man, let's get into God's Word before our minds become consumed with other things. And listen, maybe you say you're not a morning person. Listen, give yourself 10 minutes. 10 minutes to get into God's Word. Take in that manna. And it's going to remind us it's going to remind us about who God is and what God's doing. Not only is it meant to be taken in daily before we're distracted by other things, but it requires diligence. It requires humility. You know, I've always heard it said, the Bible is the one book that as you read it, it reads you. You know what I've always found beautiful? One thing I try to always do is read a proverb a day with the 31. And no matter how many times I read through it, there will be times where I'll read and something will pop out differently than it did before. Not communicating something different, but just highlighting something different in the scope of my life that like, man, I needed that today. Like I needed to know that. Because God's Word is supernatural. And it takes a diligence and a humility to go before it and to tell God, God, I need something from this today. I need this manna. I need its provision. I need its satisfaction. And the last thing is this. Just like the manna was despised by the multitudes, the Word of God is despised by the multitudes. It's outdated. It's archaic. It's a history book. Or it's a book of fairy tales. Who needs it? I don't need, you know, what you hear people say it all the time, I don't need some 2,000-year-old book telling me what I need to do or how I need to live. But it's within partaking of that manna that we live in true freedom, that we live in true joy, that we find true satisfaction and true fulfillment. So church, as the band comes up and we begin to lean into worship this morning, I pray for us that, that we could see that, that if our perspectives have been shifted in any means by our own personal cravings or the, the mixed culture or the mixed company that we keep, that our perspective of who God is and what God is doing has begun to stir up angst or discontentment within our walk with God, that we would begin to pray, God, help me fix my perspective. God, help me see the people you've surrounded me with that help me see you for who you are and what you're doing. God, help me see the manna that you've provided in revealing to me your presence through your holy revealed word. God, let me see the beauty of the things 
that you intend to give to me and that you intend to do. So church, could we pray together this morning for that work of God in our lives and in our families and in our church? Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you. God, we thank you for who you are and what you do. God, we thank you that what we rely on in life is not our own doing. God, that what we rely on in our strength is not our own doing. That God, what we rely on in carrying and navigating the spaces we live in, the strength we believe we need, Lord, to carry on is not developed from within us, God, but we find it in you. Father God, help us. Lord, help us to be honest about where our needs are. Because, Lord, we know that it's within our needs that we begin to see the beauty of what you can do and what you will do. Lord, help us. Help us to be the Christian husbands and wives and, and, and grandparents and, 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 and spouses and people that you've called us to be. Lord, we know. We know that life and joy and happiness, all these things, Lord, they come within you. But most of all, Lord, it's the salvation that you bring us. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to grow in it. Help us to navigate it in confidence. Lord, we just love you so much, Lord. We thank you for all your blessings. We just ask you to continue to work in these moments as we respond in prayer and in worship. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, stand with us and let us.